If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. And today we're going to pick up where we left off in the story of Jesus as told by Luke. And you remember we started this some weeks ago, but then of course uh, Thanksgiving and and Christmas and all that uh, happened. And so we we kind of paused our series. But we are going to pick up on this again. And just to remind you where we are... You remember that Jesus has called his first disciples. Back in chapter 5, he called uh, two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter and James and John. They were fishermen, and they were actually in a fishing business together. Um, They began to follow Jesus. They had a miraculous catch of fish, and he he called them to follow him, and uh, they left everything and did that. Jesus went out, and he was healing some people. Probably one of the most memorable people that he healed was a paralytic that was let down through the roof by some of his friends. Now, you remember in that incident, they lowered him down before Jesus. Jesus healed the man, but before he did, he forgave the man's sin. And that was the, that was the man's ultimate need. That was his most important need. And the religious leaders, when they saw this and, and they heard Jesus tell him that his sins were forgiven, they rightly identified that only God could forgive sin. And that was the point. Jesus was making a claim to deity. Now, this was really the beginning of, of this hostility and this opposition towards Jesus. And uh, so after, after, they, uh, after that little incident, Jesus went out and he called a man by the name of Levi. We know him by Matthew. He's the one that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was a tax collector. Jesus called him to follow him. Um, he did. And then he had a great big party for all of his, uh, well, scummy friends. And because they were, all, they were all the outcasts of society, nobody liked them. They were the tax collectors, the sinners, really the dregs of society. And he had a big party so that people could come and be around Jesus. Now this really upset the religious leaders because they hear all this laughing and talking and, and it looked like a real good time. But Jesus said that he was calling them to repentance. And it's like, you know what, that doesn't sound like repentance to me. It, it doesn't look like repentance. And so Jesus told them a little parable about old and new wineskins. And what he was saying was, I'm bringing something new, something different that is so, uh, so different and vastly superior to the old. It's not going to fit in the old way of doing things. And so that leads us to our text today, which is there are really two incidents that are related. They go hand in hand about Jesus's work on the Sabbath. Now, again, he's going to make some people mad and you'll, you'll start to see Uh, this opposition to Jesus began to ramp up. Now, on one hand, it's very simple to understand, very easy to understand what's going on. But on the other hand, there are a lot of different layers of, of things that we can learn from it. And on top of that, we tend to come to the text with our 21st century American eyes. And so we look at some of these things and it doesn't make, it may not make a whole lot of sense to us when we, uh, when we read it. And so I'll try and explain some of those things along the way. So hopefully it'll open up a little bit. Now, I've titled my sermon today, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but I could just as easily have titled it, God Desires Compassion Over Sacrifice, or The Dangers of Legalism, or any number of things, but, uh, but I'll try and focus just on, on Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. So, if you found Luke chapter 6, I'd ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. We'll pick up in verse 1 and read down to verse 11. It says, Now it happened that while he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful 
for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man who was, uh, who, whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, the first thing that I want you to see in our text today is a condemned act. I want you to see the condemned act. Now, now for us to understand what's going on, we need to kind of set the stage a little bit. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples, they are traveling on the Sabbath. They're going from point A to point B, and evidently some Pharisees were traveling along with them. Um, we, we don't know exactly why they were traveling. Obviously, it wasn't so they could learn the ways of God from, from Christ himself, but rather, most likely, they were walking along trying to find something to complain and, uh, and accuse him of. And how would you like to have people just walking and watching your every move to try and find something to complain about? And it appears that that's what these, uh, these people were doing. But they were going along with Jesus, and they, they see them walking through some grain fields. Now, immediately, some questions start to arise. Number one, why were they walking through grain fields? Because when we go out for a walk, if we're walking from point A to point B, or if maybe we're just going out for a stroll, we don't decide, hey, you know what, let's just walk through the neighbor's crops. That sounds like a good idea. We, we tend to walk on a road. We tend to walk on a path. And so what were they doing in a grain field? Well, again, we come to it with 21st century American understandings and, and our experience. And so the way we think about things is we think about fields as being a nice big square um, or maybe a, a rectangular plot of land. Uh, it's, it's easy to define where all the borders are because you have a, a fence, many times it's a barbed wire fence uh, set up, and you know right where it is, the road's over here and the field's over here, nice neat rows of crops, things like that. That wasn't the case. They didn't have planters. They didn't have tractors. And so what they would do is they would, instead of planting in nice neat rows, they would go out and they would broadcast their seeds. And they would throw their seeds. And so you'd have seeds all over the place, and so it would look kind of like it would be kind of like, uh, you know, when the, the, the pastures get tall right before they mow the hay? It'd be kind of like that, only there'd be grain there. Now, if you're reading uh, the King James and maybe some other translations, your Bible may say that they, were, that they were doing this stuff with corn. Now, it's not corn as in, like, maize. It's not like sweet corn. Okay, this is, uh, this is a generic term for grain. It's probably barley or most likely, I think, probably wheat. And so, anyway, um, there, there, there's... This field, not nice, neat rows, and you don't have barbed wire fence. That was a much later invention. And so what would happen is they didn't have a road or a path that was over here and the field was over there. If people wanted to go from here to there, they'd just go. And they just cut through. And what would happen is, if, if you've looked out and, and you probably have, had, uh, have at least seen pastures where the cattle go, you can tell where the cattle walk. Because everything will be green except for there will be a path. And that path is rock hard, it's, and, and it doesn't make any sense to me because the field or the pasture can be wide open, and the cows will walk in a straight line, one behind the other. 
and they walk on that path, and people were the same way. They would walk on this on a path, one behind the other, and they, after time, just like the cattle would would pack down that dirt in the in the pasture, that ground would get real hard, and nothing would grow there. Now this is jumping ahead a little bit, but you remember Jesus told a parable about some soils. Man went out to sow some seed, and some of it fell on different types of soil. And he talked about some falling on the road. This is the type, This is the environment. This is what he had in mind when he was talking about the seed falling on the road and it was hard, and so the, the birds came and, and picked up the seed and so forth. Anyway, so there would be a path that would just go out through the grain field. It's not like they were walking along uh, 174 and said, hey, let's just cut out here through the grain field. And they took off out through the grain field. They, this was a path, and they were following it, and they were picking heads of grain. And that's where the second question arises. Why are they helping themselves to somebody else's crops? Because we look at that and we say, we, we kind of identify with the, the Pharisees and we say, yeah, what are you doing picking the grain? What are you doing taking somebody else's stuff? But if you'll read closely, their problem wasn't with what they were doing, but when they were doing it. And the reason they didn't have a problem with what they were doing is because in the Old Testament, God had told the he had told the farmers, don't harvest the edges of your fields. Leave the grain standing. And that way, the poor of the land could come and get grain. And so if somebody was down their luck, maybe it was a widow, didn't have family to take care of her. Uh, and you remember that Ruth and, and Naomi, they, they, they did this. Ruth went out and, and she went into Boaz's field and, and she was getting grain. And so this was a way to take care of, they didn't have welfare back then, and so this was a way for the community to care for the poor. And, and so there would have been probably, at the very least, there would have been that. At most, the grain field would have been full. Uh, but they, they went out, and the Bible says in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, that it's actually allowed what they were doing. Those verses say, When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put, in, uh, put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Now we read this, and again, we, we identify with the Pharisees, and we say, yeah, that's not right for you to do that. But again, their problem was with when they were doing it, not what they were doing it. If it would have been any other of the six days of the week, they, never, they wouldn't have batted an eye. So here's Jesus and his disciples. They're going along. They're, being, they're where they're supposed to be, doing what's allowed to be done. And yet the Pharisees, you see, they got all upset with Jesus. They said, you guys are breaking the Sabbath. Now remember the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. God has set apart a day. And he said, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, treat it specially. It should be set apart for him. And, and, and the Pharisees, now understand, if you broke the Sabbath, back then it was a capital offense. And so understandably, the Jews wanted to know what constitutes work on the Sabbath, since this is a capital offense. And so through time, the rabbis, the experts in the law, they came up with all kinds of different um, uh, rules, regulations, definitions of what it was to work. And they got down into the minutiae. This is allowed, this isn't, so on and so forth. 
And so one of the things they did, for instance, is the Bible talks about uh, not, you're not supposed to travel on the Sabbath. And so, um, but if you're, if you're there in the camp, no matter how far away you are in the camp, you can still travel to the tabernacle. So on one hand, it says, the Bible says don't travel. On the other hand, you can travel some. What's the cutoff? And so the rabbis, they, they got to looking at the, the, the law, the prophets, and so forth, and they said, the distance you can travel on the Sabbath is 2,000 cubits. And so, remember, a cubit's about 18 inches. And so they said, you can travel 2,000 cubits. And it became, that, that distance was known as a Sabbath day's journey. And so sometimes you read in the New Testament, it says they went a Sabbath day's journey. That's what it's talking about. So... They said, you can go 2,000 cubits. So if you go 2,000 cubits and stop, you've kept the Sabbath. You're, you're good. If you go 2,000 cubits and take a step, you've broken the Sabbath, heinous sin. Now, people want to have loopholes. Right? We, we, want, we want to kind of fudge a little bit. Well, if I can take 2,000 cubits, why, why not 2,005? Why not 2,010? Why not... 4,000. And so what, what eventually started happening was they said, well, it's not 2,000 cubits from your house. If you live in town, it's 2,000 cubits from the city wall. And then they said, well, you know, if you, if you have food in a place, that's kind of by extension your house. And so what you can do is you can take provisions and set it out at 2,000 cubits from where you're, going, from where you're starting. And you can go 2,000 cubits, get your provisions, that's like an extension of your house, and then go 2,000 more. See, they, they, they were coming up with all kinds of loopholes. And so they got down into the nitty-gritty, and, and they said, this is allowed, this isn't. And it got to be to where this day that was supposed to be a day of rest, relaxation, and refreshment became this, this, this thing that was a heavy burden for the people to bear. And so, so they look at Jesus, they look at his disciples, they're plucking grain, they're, they're rubbing it in their hands, they're blowing the chaff away, and they're eating it. And so the Pharisees, they had rules for all that stuff too. And what they did, the stuff that they were doing, the picking the grain, they would call that harvesting. Rubbing it together, they would call that threshing. The blowing the chaff away, they would consider winnowing. And then eating it would be preparing the food. All those things were against the rules for the Sabbath. And it really got the Pharisees, well, it got them torqued off. I mean, they were mad. They were picking at them. And here I want you to see the Davidic example. The Davidic example. So Jesus, if you look at your text, in verse 3, uh, Jesus pointed them to the example of David. So these guys are, are experts in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he points them back to one of their heroes. This is a man after God's own heart. They thought highly of him. He was, he was the man that ushered in the golden age of Israel. And he said, don't you remember what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 21, now they didn't have that, they didn't have the names, they didn't have the, the chapters and verse divisions, I'm just telling you so you can look at it later. 1 Samuel chapter 21, Saul is king, David has been told that he's going to be king, Saul is mad at David, he's trying to kill him, and so David is fleeing, he's running for his life, and there are some men that are traveling with him. As he's traveling, he gets to a place called Nob, and there's, there's some priests there. And David and his men are famished. I mean, they are to the point of fainting. And David says, do you have any provisions? Do you have any food? And the priest says, the only thing we have are, 
or it's the showbread. Now, the consecrated bread, the showbread, what that was, was in, in the tabernacle. They, they had a, a table set out in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. There were 12 loaves of bread on it. And it was replaced once a week. And every, every week that was replaced. And the priests were the only ones who could eat it because it was considered holy. And they couldn't take it out and eat it at home. They had to eat it at the tabernacle. And so the only people who lawfully could eat that bread was the priest. And the priest says, the only thing that we have is this bread. But guess what? He gave it to David and his men. And David and his men ate the bread. And so Jesus points at that and he says, Don't you, haven't you ever read about this incident? And understand when he does this, he's not doing whataboutism. He's not saying, well, yeah, I did, me and my, me and my disciples, we did this, but your guy did it first. But what, about, but what about David? He did it before us. He did it too. He doesn't, he's not doing that. What the point is, is he's drawing a parallel. There's David and his hungry men. There's Jesus and his hungry men. And they're both doing something that's against some rules. One of them is God's rules. One of them is Pharisaical rules. And the point is, David and his men broke a rule that God had given. But... God didn't judge him for it. David and his men broke a rule that God himself had given, but God didn't judge him for it. He didn't condemn him. The priest doesn't refuse him, and none of Scripture says that was a bad or wrong thing to do. And so the question then becomes, why? If God gave a command, and David broke that command, and the men that went, that went with him broke that command, why didn't God condemn him? And the reason is because there is a greater, more important principle at work than this rule about the showbread. And we do the same thing. Let, let me give you an example that maybe helps flesh this out. Does anybody like kids running in your house? Probably not. You probably have a rule about your kids or your grandkids. You probably had a rule about your kids, maybe not your grandkids. Don't run in the house. You want to run, you do it outside. There's all kinds of space, you do it out there, this is the house, you don't do that. And you see your kids do it, you see your grandkids do it, if you're going to do that, get out. Just go, go, run, play, not in here. And you get on to them every time you see it. But let's say there's a fire in the bedroom, and they run out of the house. When everybody gets out of the house, do you say, son, daughter, you know you shouldn't have been running that house. You're grounded. Do you get on to him? Of course not. Why? Because there's a greater principle at work. There's something more important going on. Now, had they broken your rule? Yes. Was it less important than saving life? Yes. Preservation of life is more important. And that's what's going on here. Had they broken the rule? Yes. Was there a bigger principle at play? The preservation of life? Yes. Now, Matthew records this as well. And in Matthew chapter 12, I believe it is, what he does is he tells them, if you know what this means, God desires compassion more than sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Yeah, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7. And so, so what he's saying is, God is more concerned about people than performance of ritual. 
God's more concerned about people than performance of ritual. He's not saying, he's not talking about not being holy. He's talking about there are some rules that are more important than others. And what had happened was, as I said before, they come up with all these extra rules that they had added to the Sabbath that took the joy, the peace, the refreshment, the gift out of the gift and had made it slavery, had made it bondage, had made it difficult for the people to follow. And, and, and so what Jesus said in, in, I think it's Mark's gospel, it records the same event, it has some extra dialogue. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And what he's saying is, there are some things that are more important than others. And, and he's saying that God is more concerned about people than performance. Now, we don't celebrate the Sabbath like they did. But there's still a danger of becoming just as legalistic. There's still a danger of missing the spirit of the law for the letter of the law. There's still the danger of becoming like a Pharisee and adding all these extra rules that you think everybody should follow, even though it's not spelled out in Scripture. You're met anybody like that? They, they come up with all these extra rules not spelled out in Scripture, and then they get mad at you for not doing their rules? That's legalism. Now, see, we do that, don't we? Because we think people should act this way and this way and this way, and some of those things align with what Scripture says, and some do not. Now, if we fail to live up to some of those extra things that are not in Scripture that we think everybody needs to do, and we fail to live up to it, what do we do? Well, I did the best I could. I'll do it better next time. We think about our motivations. We, we know that we intended to do better, but when somebody else fails to live up to our standards, we condemn them. We don't give them that same grace. But listen, we are not bound by other people's legalism. He, he finishes. You think about what were Baptists known for condemning. You don't do what? You don't drink, you don't cuss, you don't smoke, you don't play cards, you don't uh, go to movies, you don't dance. That's what people think about when they think of Baptists, right? Now, some of those things are wise. Some of those things are just extra stuff that there's no basis in Scripture for. Listen, God is more concerned about people than performance of ritual. And so Jesus concludes what he tells them in verse 5, that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean that he is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, think about it. Who was the Sabbath supposed to be set apart for and devoted to? It's God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Holy unto the Lord. So when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, the Sabbath really points to me. That is a, an explicit claim to deity. Second, you say, well, uh, maybe. Who was it that gave the law to Moses? God. On Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments. One of those Ten Commandments was, is the Sabbath. And he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What's he saying? I, my word is equal to the one who gave the law to begin with. And who is that? God himself. Claim to deity. You say, well, when was the Sabbath, when was the Sabbath instituted? 
Say Mount Sinai. No, creation. Not by Adam. How many, day, how many days did it take God to create everything? Six. And the seventh day, he rested. Sabbath, the Sabbath rest was instituted at creation by God. So when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, what's he saying? It's my day. I created it. I'm the one who gave the command about it. It all points to me. What's he saying? He's making a claim, I am God. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You say, okay, I get that, but what does that have to do with their complaint? Think about it. He says, y'all are getting your nose out of joint about this thing that's happening on the Sabbath, but guess what? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and it doesn't offend me. And if I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the one who gets to choose what's a violation of my command and what's not. And sometimes, don't we get offended on behalf of God for things God doesn't get offended about? And he says, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm saying it's okay for them to do. Secondly, he says, as the Lord of the Sabbath, I have a right to tell you not only what the the letter of the law says, but also the spirit of the law. And that is that Sabbath, in this case, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day of rest to serve man, not the other way around. Now, there is another episode with the man with the withered hand and, and all that happened on the Sabbath. And there's a lot there. And so I think in the interest of time, we're going to break that up and we're going to take, talk about that next time. But as we wrap this up, what are a couple of practical things that we can take away from this text? Well, number one is we must always be on our guard guard against self-righteousness and legalism. We must be on our guard against self-righteousness and legalism. Because it's easy to expect everybody to live up to our standards rather than God's standards. It's easy to become holier than thou. To think it applies to thee, not to me. To think that everybody else needs to do all these things, to check all these boxes, and excuse ourselves when we fail to live up to it, too. Another thing that that we can do to fall into this self-righteousness, as good Christian people here in Missouri, we read the Pharisees, we read what they're doing, and it's easy to say, God, thank you I'm not like those men. Thank you I'm not like those other men that did this and that and this and that. Because ironically, that's what the Pharisee did in Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the publican who stood and said, Thank you, God, I'm not like that man. Thank you, I'm not like the sinners, I'm not like the publicans. Thank you for that. And it's easy for us to to say, God, thank you, I'm not like the Pharisees. Thank you for letting me be so much better than them. Self-righteousness, propping ourselves up. Folks, the Christian faith is bigger than do's and don'ts, having a bunch of check boxes. If we check it all off, God's good with us. Okay, I've, I've done my Bible reading three, about five out of the seven days. Well, three really, but I, I, look, I thought about two of those days, so I'll say four days. Read the Bible this week. That's more than, more than half. And I, I went to church, you know, 
three times this month, and I, I gave I gave some money in the plate, and I didn't flip that guy off when he cut me off in traffic. Hallelujah, I'm good this month. Isn't that what we think? We we put all these check boxes, and we we forget all the the stuff that uh, the 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 stuff that God's called us to that we didn't live up to. We don't care that we've not loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we've done just these outward performances. That's not enough. The Christian faith is bigger than do's and don'ts. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear. I am not saying this is a license to live in an unholy manner. Because there's a tendency for us to say, oh, well, if if God's not concerned with do's and don'ts, well, I'll just live any old way I want. I'll live like the devil. I'll still go to church on Sunday, and I'll just go on to heaven, and I'll have enjoyed my time on earth, and I'll get it in heaven too. Win-win. God has not said, you can live any old way you want. He said, be holy. Be perfect, God said, for I am perfect. Be holy. Live a holy life of of consistency, of love, of compassion, of faithfulness. Those are the things that God's called us to. God is more concerned about compassion than sacrifice. This is not a call to licentiousness. It's a call to remember that God is concerned with more than just our outward actions. He's concerned about the heart. Now, what does it mean to show compassion? Compassion is love in action. And what I think what this highlights is that you can have, you, you can care, you can show compassion to people without having a vibrant faith. People do it all the time. People are sick, people are poor, people are hungry, people are destitute, and there are people that don't claim the name of Jesus, and they'll give money, they'll give time, they'll go help out at the soup kitchen, they'll give clothes, they'll give all that stuff. Listen, you can care for people without having a vibrant faith, but you can't have a vibrant faith without caring for people. See, those things go hand in hand. They're, they, they, they go together. God is concerned about compassion. He, he desires compassion more than sacrifice. And so, as we bring it into our own lives... Is there somebody in your life that needs some compassion? Another word for that uh, compassion is mercy. Is there somebody that needs some mercy, some grace, a friend, a colleague, a family member? And compassion is not enablement. It's not enabling them to, to, uh, to sin. It's not enabling them to not work and care for themselves. But it's caring for the needs of others. Is there somebody in your life that needs some compassion? I'm going to tell you, there is. There are a lot of folks. Because each of us need some grace right now. Each of us needs some mercy. Because we look all around and we see all the division. And this, this is a tough world to live in. Especially right now. Because we have all this uncertainty going on with all the health and medical things. And then compound that with all the uncertainties, with all the political stuff. And then we have all the uncertainties and unrest in, in all these different realms. And it's easy to look at somebody and get on our high horse and point our, wag our pointy finger uh, at them and, and stick our nose up in the air. We need to show some mercy and compassion and grace, especially right now. 
Each of us needs that mercy. And each of us needs to examine our hearts to see if we are showing that. But we also need to see if we're being legalistic. Are we adding all these commands to what God's commands actually are? Are we sticking our nose up in the air thinking that we are better than everybody else? Maybe, maybe, maybe you've been thinking, I'll just do the check boxes. If I have enough check boxes checked off when I die, God will look at that and say, You've got more checked off than not checked off. You can come on in. But that's not the case. Your righteousness, all the good that you do, all the good that you've ever done, all the good that you can do, apart from Christ, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. It's not going to avail you before God. The only way to get to heaven is to have your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him alone. That is the only way to get to heaven. And it could be that, that, that maybe somebody here is, has never done that. Today, put your faith in Him. The Bible says that God's calling on all people everywhere to repent. Watch, stand with me as Musicians, come. Nasty, bow your heads and close your eyes as you stand. And with nobody looking around, I just want to encourage you to consider your heart. Are you content to go through the motions of religion like the Pharisees? Do you hold everybody else to all these different standards that the Bible doesn't give us? But you made your rules more important than his at times. Do you use that as a basis for thinking that you're better than everybody else because you've done your rules to your satisfaction but other people haven't? Listen, you you compare yourself to you, you're going to come out on top. You compare yourself to God, you'll come out a loser every time. When we get to heaven, our, our, our sin, our righteousness or lack thereof is not against the standard of us, it's against the standard of Christ. And the great thing is that on, in, in his life, Jesus lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law in all the ways that we can't. He was perfectly righteous. And we put our faith in him, he... He forgives that sin and that righteousness is credited to us as if it were our own. What an act of mercy and grace that is for us. Who is in your life that needs that compassion, that mercy? You got that family member who's really struggling. You got that friend, that coworker. Again, it could be that you have maybe been counting on your own righteousness to get you into heaven. Your righteousness is not enough. Your goodness is not enough. Christ is. Heavenly Father. God, it is so easy to be a modern-day Pharisee. 
to look at others and complain about the stuff that they're doing that doesn't suit us when we ourselves are overlooking the weightier matters of the law. The love, the compassion, the justice, the mercy. And God, I, I thank you that you are concerned about people and not performance. Having said that, God, we know that it's not a free-for-all. You've called us to live holy lives, and I ask that you'd help us to do that. Help us to live righteously, but not self-righteously. God, at, at the same time that we look at the Pharisees and we say, help us not be like them, we know at the same time we pat ourselves on the back because we don't think we are like them. God, I pray that you would help us to avoid those, those pitfalls of legalism and to be interested in compassion and people and love and mercy and grace towards others. And Lord, if there's somebody here who's, who's counting on their own righteousness, their own goodness to get them into heaven, Lord, help them to see their filthy rags for what they are and to wholly throw themselves on the on the the goodness the mercy and the grace of christ we ask these things in jesus name amen